This is Climate One. The lack of affordable housing in the U.S. has contributed to a homelessness crisis and forced people to move farther away from urban centers. The easiest place to put housing is where there are no neighbors or very few, which means sprawl. On the other hand, increasing density where there's already infrastructure and jobs could be good for both housing prices and the climate. Having housing that's located in a place where people don't have to drive everywhere, commute long hours, that's how we really, really uh, reduce our carbon footprint. But building multi-story apartments in urban cores usually costs more per square foot than one or two-story houses where land is cheaper. So how do we address the need for affordable housing and the climate crisis at the same time? We need to build policies around what we can afford, not what each special interest decides they want. Housing density as a climate lever, up next on Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. We live here in this in this community just like they do. We, and while we respect their position, we, we'd like them to hear our side of it. We're really clear about the demands that, we, that we're making. We want 100% affordable housing. In those 40 bedrooms, there could be as many as 80 people. And if even 20 of them have cars, it will be a nightmare for this neighborhood. We want to be a city that includes Latinos, includes African Americans, that includes seniors, that includes people uh, who have limited income. We do not want to be a city that is just overtaken by the highest bidder, but that is what the city is becoming. One of the guys that I work with currently, he commutes from Tracy, and he says that he starts his shift at 6.30, but he leaves his house at 3. We do not want to put the lives of our citizens at risk through what I would call ill-advised, multi-unit, high-density units. Wow, I hear a lot in that news montage. I hear fear of traffic, fear of displacement, and a racial dog whistle about ill-advised density bringing in others. And yet in California, a historic undersupply of housing has led to soaring prices and an increasing number of people without homes. And it's not just California. We're facing a housing crisis nationwide. Home prices have risen more than 30% over the past few years, and rents are rising sharply too. A lot of cities that used to be affordable just aren't anymore. It's estimated that we're 3.8 million homes short of meeting our housing needs. That's a big deficit. Yeah, it is. One proposed solution is infill development. This is building in vacant or underutilized land, usually in urban areas. It can also mean adding more density to existing single-family home neighborhoods by changing zoning to allow things like accessory dwelling units, which are more commonly thought of as guest houses or maybe mother-in-law units. Increased density tends to decrease reliance on cars and thus cut carbon footprints. Right. Walkable neighborhoods are desirable neighborhoods. Yet when most people think about housing and climate, they may think about replacing gas furnaces and stoves with heat pumps and induction cooktops. That's all good, and transportation is a bigger lever. To find out how we might help mitigate both the housing and greenhouse gas crises, I talked with California State Senator Scott Weiner. Our conversation recorded in front of a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California. He's the guy driving this conversation and new policies in the Golden State. I asked him how he sees new housing construction as a climate lever. I mean, of course, we want all of our buildings, particularly new ones, to be decarbonized and and to have a lower carbon footprint in and of themselves. But even more important is having housing that's located in a place where people don't have to drive everywhere, commute long hours, uh, where people can drive less or if they choose not drive at all. Uh, have access to public transportation, be close to where they go to school, where they work. That's how we really, really uh, reduce our carbon footprint because transportation is a massive aspect of carbon emissions. In California, it's almost half. Uh, and so if we're serious about reducing carbon emissions, we, we got to have a more sustainable land use pattern in terms of where we're putting housing. Right. And most of the curves in California on climate are going in a positive direction down if they're bad things. And vehicle-mized travel is the one thing that's, that's getting away from California. Absolutely. We're, 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 not, we're not doing enough, first of all, to support public transportation. But we, because we make it so hard to get housing approved in the places where we want it, 
in infill housing, near jobs, near transit, in existing communities. We make it so hard and expensive and a fight as we, the easiest place to put housing is where there are no neighbors or very few, which means sprawl, which means destroying open space, destroying sensitive habitat, building in wildfire zones, building further and further and further out where there are fewer people to complain about the housing. And that is very destructive environmentally. Two-thirds of residential land in California had been restricted to single-family homes that have been off-limits to the development of backyard houses. A law you authored changed that, yet it hasn't opened up a whole lot of new supplies. Why is it so hard to build affordable housing in the world's fifth-largest economy? Well, in terms of zoning, you're right. The large majority of land in California was zoned only for single-family homes. And what that means, just to put it in totally plain English, means every other kind of housing was banned. It didn't used to be that way until like 50 years ago, you could build apartment buildings in a lot of different places. And then starting in the 70s into the 80s, uh, cities methodically banned apartment buildings and said only single family homes. So only one unit of housing per parcel, which creates a math problem. Uh, and it also completely induced sprawl and people knew at the time and racial filtering yes. let's be honest and, and, and single family zoning was invented about a hundred years ago after the supreme court struck down racial zoning uh communities starting with berkeley uh discovered well if we we, we can't explicitly uh ban people of color but what we can do is make it impossible uh for anyone who's not uh, you know, upper income to live here. And so they said you can only build single family homes. So we, we did pass, well, first we uh, really strengthened our existing law to allow for in-law units or a, what we call an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, and that, it took a while, but that's now exploding. We're seeing uh, up and down the state, these accessory units are, are being built in increasing numbers. Uh, um, a couple of years ago, we passed legislation led by our Senate president, Senator Tony Atkins from San Diego, um, to basically eliminate single family zoning uh, and to have duplex zoning or, or two to four units. Um, it's only been in effect for a year. Um, it, you know, development never moves as fast as we want, so people are worrying that it's not producing enough, but it'll, it'll get there, it just takes time. Okay, so granny units or in-law units will we'll get there, yet when it's still cheaper to build outside of cities, further from jobs and amenities, how do you address climate and the justice and equity issues at the same time? Yeah, well, we, we need to make it easier and easier to build in sustainable locations, and infill housing in, in existing communities, near jobs, near schools, near public transportation. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do, um, to try to, because right now we've set up a system that's designed to fail, um, a system that empowers, it's, I, I, I'm a former local elected official, I'm a former neighborhood association president. Um, I believe in public input and people having a stake in their own community and, and having the right to have an opinion about their own community. Uh, but we've gone so far beyond that, that we have endless process that can take years and years and years, even if you're building within all the rules. In addition, we have, empowered obstructionists who are not typically representative, right? Most people don't even know that this public hearing is happening. They're, they're working, they're trying to get their kids to do their homework, they're putting dinner on the table. Uh, and you have people who may or may not be representative of the community at large, but they have the ability to show up at a million community meetings and to file appeals and, and, and they are able, we, we've given them the tools to obstruct, delay, kill these projects. And that needs to change. Some people say that you know, housing is an example where NIMBYs and progressive areas have captured regulators, something that liberals often accuse uh, people on the right and corporations of doing. But NIMBYism is, is sort of regulatory capture from the left. So, so what's the solution? Well, first of all, I don't think NIMBYism is left. True progressivism is not NIMBYism. And so I think you have people in blue areas, um, like parts of California and other parts of the country, they might have a Bernie Sanders sign on their lawn or a Black Lives Matter sign on their lawn or a big rainbow flag unfurled, which is great, uh, but they are at the same time acting in a very, very conservative way by saying, I don't want any change in my community. And I'm worried about the, the quote unquote kind of people 
who are going to come here, who are going to somehow, quote unquote, degrade my community. If showing up at a planning commission or a city council, like development appeal in a blue area, sometimes it doesn't sound that different from a red area in terms of the things that come out of people's mouths uh, and things that it's shocking to hear people say. And I get people are very passionate about their neighborhood. I completely respect that. Uh, But sometimes we need to be forward thinking and saying, hey, this might, maybe it'll be a little bit harder for me to park. Maybe there'll be a view that, is, that I've had for a long time that, I, that, that isn't quite as good anymore. But more people are gonna be able to live here, that there will be a, a prayer for, for the next generation to ha- have a place to live. Maybe fewer people will be living in their cars. Maybe we won't have uh, 5% of San Francisco Unified School District. 5% of those kids are homeless. And that's consistent and probably an undercount statewide, that we have families who are literally waking up in a homeless shelter or a car, dropping their kids off from school, going to work. And so that's what this is about. And so I think NIMBYism is inherently very conservative, even if you're registered as a Democrat. California has a statewide goal of reaching two and a half million new housing units by 2030, one million of which must be affordable. New housing construction has fallen behind demand for decades, and for decades, cities and counties have not met their goals and not much has happened. Now those jurisdictions face financial penalties for not meeting state-mandated levels of new housing. Will the hammer get the job done? I think it will move us in a, a very good direction. And when we see what's happening in the last six or eight years where we've really been putting teeth into longstanding state housing law in California uh, and passing new laws. And, and it has, uh, I think it's gradually working. And we look at in San Francisco, the Board of Supervisors just adopted what we call a housing element. Um, uh, and a housing element in California is every eight years, a city has to put together a housing plan incorporating like numbers of new homes that the state provides. Uh, and you have to plan for how you're going to meet that, those housing goals in the next eight years. And historically, the process has been a, sort of a joke. Um, I went through it when I was on the Board of Supervisors. It was very controversial, but ultimately, it's like a document that sits on a shelf collecting dust. The housing element process now it has teeth in it. Uh, and San Francisco just adop- adopted uh, a new housing element to plan for 82,000 homes. It's a very, very strong plan. I want to commend our planning department and the Board of Supervisors and the mayor and everyone who made this happen. But that happened because the people in our city government who want to do the right thing now had the leverage to do it because the hammer of state law was out there that if the city adopted a bad housing plan or didn't adopt one on time, there would be all sorts of consequences. And, and cities up and down the state are seeing that and, are, and a lot of them are trying to do the right thing. And the ones that don't do the right thing are gonna have consequences. And so that's two to three times the amount of you know, annual production that San Francisco and Bay Area- Three times. Yeah, three, three times. Um, so is that gonna make the NIMBYs not be NIMBYs? No. They, what we fa- what we found is that even when you, you even when you streamline housing approvals and if, if there are cities that want to fight it, they'll try to find loopholes with with in-law units. For years, it, cities were technically required to allow people to put in-law units in their homes. Uh, cities ignored it. They found all sorts of loopholes. We eventually it took us like five or six laws that we passed. We finally, I think, sealed off every loophole, and now it's, it's just sort of happening. And unfortunately, you ha- the, the and there are certain cities that have showed us the way, like they've been so obstructionist that they unearth every loophole, which I really appreciate. Cupertino did a great job of that, where Apple is headquartered. They unearthed every loophole, and so we would close the loopholes based on what they discovered. Um, and they now have a new city council that's a lot better, so that's a good thing. Transit-oriented development has been talked about for a long time, uh, aims to build housing near transportation hubs. I recently drove around uh, near the BART station in Concord, a city of 130,000 people, 30 miles from San Francisco. There were empty lots near the, the regional commuter rail station, also blocks of housing, four to five stories tall. It's like, okay, I can see kind of things happening here. Yet building on parking lots near that commuter rail is highly controversial. Some say housing is a higher use of that land, and others say removing parking hurts working class people who can't afford to live close by because housing prices are so high. So how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, when when you look at it, like the BART system in the Bay Area, we have all these BART stations where we made public investments and 
very few people live within walking distance. It's people who live in single family homes who are privileged to have been able to afford those homes right by the BART station. And so the idea is to also allow for apartment buildings, particularly, you know, BART has a lot of land around the station to put apartment buildings there. And we actually, um, a, a few years ago, we passed a law authorizing BART to approve its own uh, projects within certain constraints. It was very controversial. We thought, felt that it was important because some of the cities that have BART stations were just refusing uh, to allow it. Um, we want to make sure that these are mixed income developments, that some will be 100% affordable or mixed income with market rate and below market rate mixed together, which is great to have mixed income developments. We want to make sure that, that people of all incomes can live there. Uh, there. There's also nothing that would stop BART instead of having, if you think about it, these, park, these massive parking lots that surface parking lots, if you replace that, most of it for housing, you can still have, they can create a parking structure um, if they want. There's nothing stopping them from doing that so the people who are, you know, still have the ability to, to drive in if they don't live anywhere nearby. So there's nothing stopping BART from having that kind of mixed use. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about housing density as a climate lever. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing with your friends, you can help people have their own deeper, empowering climate conversations. Coming up, how can more vulnerable communities be protected against displacement from development in their neighborhoods? If you combine anti-displacement strategies with adding new housing, you're not going to see that kind of displacement. You will reduce the pressure because you have all these new buildings that people can live in without having to try to displace people in other uh, older buildings. That's up next. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Displacement is also a huge part of the housing crisis for low-income communities and people of color. New housing often follows upscale shops and eateries. Together, they can drive up prices in neighborhoods that were once affordable and force the existing community out. Let's continue my conversation with California State Senator Scott Weiner. He's driving new policies and new construction around the state. I asked him how we can make sure new development doesn't increase displacement. I think that the, we have to be very clear that the, co- the cause of displacement is not having enough homes. When you have a shortage of homes, there's competition, the prices go up, and we know what happens, and we know who tends to be the winners and who tends to be the losers. And lower income, working class people tend to draw the short end of the straw when you have a shortage of homes. Uh, and so, for example, we, we about uh, nine years ago, we had a big fight about whether to have a moratorium on new housing in the mission. And there were um, advocates in the mission who were pushing for that because they were very concerned that new construction was going to push out. This is a historically Hispanic part of San Francisco. Yeah. And what they pointed to uh, cor- correctly was that over the last ten, the prior 10 or 15 years, something like 8,000 Latino families had left the mission. And while some of those families no doubt left because they went and maybe got, bought a home in the Excelsior or went to Delhi City, there were clearly a significant number of Latino families that had, had been pushed out of the mission. But if you look at housing construction over that same, I forget, 10 or 15 year time period, almost no new housing have been built in the mission. If you ranked San Francisco neighborhoods for that time period, uh, the mission was very close to the bottom. That's changed over the last decade. But at that time, we were seeing massive displacement in the mission with almost new, no new housing being built. And that is because the mission is an amazing neighborhood. It is central, it's great weather, it has good transit, it, it's a beautiful, wonderful neighborhood. And a lot of people wanted to live there and that jacked up the rents and it gave landlords incentives to, to, to evict people and, and, and all that. And so that, having a shortage of housing is the core driver of displacement. 
you can have a bad situation where you allow for new housing, where you're demolishing old housing and displacing people. And that's why new development needs to be accompanied by anti-displacement strategies, like not knocking down uh, apartment buildings where people are living just to replace it. And in the narrow circumstances where it does make sense to replace a building, taking care of the people who are there by giving them temporary housing and then bringing them back paying the same rent, which we've done in some developments. We need strong renter protection so people aren't evicted. So if, you're, if you combine anti-displacement strategies with adding new housing, you're not going to see that kind of displacement. You will reduce the pressure because you have all these new buildings that people can live in without having to try to displace people in other uh, older buildings. So there's often a formula that, that, that new construction has to be, what, 30% uh, affordable? Is, is that enough? We, first of all, you, you need projects to be able to pencil out. So we have publicly funded projects that are 100, typically 100% affordable where, where, where we use tax credits and bond financing and so forth. Uh, when you're talking about private development, San Francisco's inclusionary, the required affordability is like 20 or so, 21%. Different kinds of projects pencil in different ways. So there are some smaller projects where 21% may not be feasible. Uh, for that project, larger projects, especially projects that also maybe include you know, office or other economic drivers, can probably support a higher percentage of affordability. And so it, we want to make sure we have these mixed income projects, but we also need to make sure that they pencil out financially because you can say we, we want 30 or 40 or 50 percent affordability, but if the project doesn't pencil out, you know, 50% of zero is still zero. Right, it still has to attract capital to, to do that project because even the state doesn't have enough money to build all of this. Yet we're still talking about, what, million dollars a door? I mean, is it really ever going to really, you know, make build enough housing when it's so bloody expensive in this yeah. area? The cost of construction is, is off the charts. And it's higher in San Francisco than elsewhere. It's going to be higher. I mean, it's more expensive to do anything in a place like San Francisco or New York City or in these you know, big cities. But it's way, way, way too expensive. And, uh, and how, some, do we get, how do we get it down? Well, the, the process cost adds to that. If it, if it takes three, four, five, seven years to get something approved instead of like three to six months, which some of the, the laws that we've been able to pass that streamline permits say that if you that you have to the city has to give the permit within three to six months, depending on the size of the project. So three to six. So for example, I'll tell you, Bridge Housing, which is the largest nonprofit affordable housing builder in California, told us that after a particular law that I authored was signed into law, SB 35. Once that happened, their average time to get a permit to build dropped from an an average of seven years to an average of four months. Wow. And so when you think about it, if, if you have a project that goes on and on, that, that it's just dragging on and appeals and lawsuits and endless process, you think about all the architects and the lawyers and the consultants and everything, that is very expensive and adds to the cost. We have a, a, a construction workforce shortage in California. That drives up the cost. We want to make sure we need to train more construction workers. We have much less control over the cost of materials, and we know that construction materials have gone up in the last uh, few years, but it is way too expensive, and, and, and it is a problem. Right. So prior to the pandemic, office vacancy rates in San Francisco was about 4%. Today, it's around 26 Nationally, that number is about 12%. Can cities in California around the country convert some of those empty offices to residential? Last year, we, we passed legislation that, that facilitates commercial conversion. And that typically is going to be you know, strip malls or office parks or sort of low rise. When we talk about downtown San Francisco, converting high rises to housing is very hard. And it, it can be very cost prohibitive because if you think about how the, the plumbing, for example, it's, it's, it's very centralized, right? One bathroom per floor, it's not per unit. So you have to completely you know, restructure the whole building. It could work for some high rises, but for many, it won't, it won't be feasible. I also just want to say, and this is just in defense of, of the great city of San Francisco, our, our obituary has been written a million times. And every time we come back stronger than before, Downtown, downtown is, is obviously going through challenging times. Um, it is more vibrant now than it was six or nine months ago. 
Uh, the trans owners of the Transamerica Pyramid are making a massive investment uh, in that building. Uh, and I think downtown San Francisco will come back. Uh, and what I don't want to see is cannibalizing our office stock and, and then all of a sudden we're back where we were in 2019 where we had a, a massive shortage of offices and small businesses and nonprofits and law firms, et cetera, were getting pushed out of the city because there was no office space they could afford. So I want us to take the long view. I don't think anyone knows what office is going to look like in three years. Anyone who says they does, I, I think they're, uh, they're, they're speculating. Uh, so I think we need to be very thoughtful about how we approach that. Environmental regulations like California Environmental Quality Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, often used to slow down. They've been, they've been weaponized. Um, should they be reformed or relaxed in some way? Um, uh, yeah, massively. Um, massively. The, the, the California, California Environmental Quality Act is, I, I, refer to, I refer to it as the law that swallowed California. Um, this was a law that was created in the 1970s for excellent reasons. And I, I'm not one to say CEQA should be repealed. CEQA needs to be refocused on actually protecting the environment. And CEQA needs to be turned into a climate action law, which right now it is not. Um, the purpose of CEQA was when you're doing something that could be potentially environmentally destructive, building a highway, building a, a dam, doing something that could be really harmful environmentally, that you have to analyze the environmental impacts to inform the decision maker. That's a great idea. CEQA uh, was never intended to allow your neighbor to jack you up because you're trying to replace your windows. And right now, you can do that. Or, or can, stop a, bu a bike lane. Stop a bike lane, stop a bus rapid transit lane, stop an apartment building on top of a public transport, on top of a rail station. That's some of the things that CEQA is being used for. And that, the, or, or to stop UC Berkeley from admitting students. That's what a, 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 a court decision ruled last year before the legislature overruled the court and changed the law. And so when you look at some of the things that, or to stop solar, that, that, that's used for that too. And so that, that, that is a problem. CEQA turned in from a, converted from an environmental law to a process law. And I'm not saying there are times when CEQA can be used to stop really bad projects, but there are a lot of good projects that either get killed or delayed um, and become more expensive or get chopped in half. Uh, and it, and, and it, anyone who can hire a lawyer, you can be a CEQA player and you, can, and you can delay and stop projects. And that is government at its absolute worst. It's not democratic. Again, CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, what housing and city models do you look at elsewhere? Who's getting it right? You're an expert on housing here in California. Look around the country. What do you see that's real bright spots? Well, I think, I think there, there are cities that their rents, this is, and this is pre-pandemic, the pandemic scrambled things up a bit, um, that were, built a lot of housing and rents came down. Like Washington, D.C. was one. Chicago was another. Uh, I'm not saying they have perfect systems, but they're, it, it, it show, and these are great, amazing cities. Uh, I, I'm a believer in, in social housing, um, which we used to call public housing, publicly built and, and run uh, housing, uh, typically mi mixed income. Uh, and, and we used to do that. Ronald Reagan killed it off in the 80s, which is, by the way, when, when homelessness started to skyrocket. That was not a coincidence. We need to get back to significant public investment in social housing. So we, you know, we, a group of us went to Vienna uh, last September, uh, and they have an amazing social housing system, but other European cities do as well, as well as Singapore. Um, and it's a really great model. It's not, it doesn't have to be the entire housing system. It's not about taking people's homes away, but it should be there as a bedrock uh, to really just to make sure that everyone has a home and can afford a home. That should not, should never be a question in a society about whether someone has the ability to have a home. Having a home should never be a privilege. It should be a right. Uh, and, but it can only be a right if we have enough homes for everyone who needs them. Even Hong Kong, one of the most capitalistic places on the planet, has a lot of public or social housing. For how long can the California ecosystem continue to support population growth? I, you know, I don't, I don't agree that building new housing is what drives population growth. People move 
where they want to live. But the lack of it can drive people out of state. It, 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 well, it can, but, but let's, let's be clear. We stopped building housing in a meaningful way decades ago, and our population for decades continued to grow. And what that meant was we had more homelessness, we had more overcrowding uh, in homes. Uh, and so, it, you know, I, I just don't agree that if we, stop, if we stop building housing, it's going to just, people are gonna stop coming here. They're gonna still come here. And we, even though we have, in the last few years, California's population growth has plateaued and then t shrunk by a tiny amount, I don't know that that's gonna continue. We've been discussing housing as a climate lever with State Senator Scott Weiner. Thank you, Senator, for coming here and for your leadership on so many climate issues. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, what effect might generational divides have on addressing the housing crisis? That generation is spending untold money through private equity and investment to buy up every single family house in the country. They want to make the whole population below them into subscribers and not owners. So this is economic warfare. That's up next. Talking about housing supply and prices is really difficult and personal. To discuss the best solutions for the housing crisis in an equitable and climate conscious way, I had a conversation with Jennifer Hernandez, a lawyer and leader of Holland and Knight's West Coast Land Use and Environmental Group, and Ben Bartlett, the Vice Mayor of Berkeley, California, which hasn't always been as liberal as we know it today. Ben started by sharing his story. I was living my life as a, a normal young person in Berkeley, having fun, and then all of a sudden, uh, my mother and her friends lived in a house with a bunch of seniors, retired school teachers. They were all victimized by their landlord who was uh, prepping the building for development. And so they turned the water off, the heat off. It was um, a very intense situation of economic eviction. Uh, they damaged their cars, all things to read about, all the horror stories. And when they left, I was like, okay, we'll just have them go to, go to senior housing. And then I saw there was no senior housing. The wait list for senior housing, I was told, was 14 to 17 years. And I didn't quite understand. I was like, wait, this is America, right? There's the taxpayers. They've, put in their, they've done their duty, and now there's nowhere for them to go. So at that moment, I realized that the, there, there was a thing called a housing crisis, and there's also an economic crisis and a crisis of disrespect uh, of our people. So I decided to get involved and address some of these issues. Jennifer, your father, and I believe both of your grandfathers were steel workers in Pittsburgh, California, where you grew up. How did your upbringing shape your understanding of the relationship between jobs and housing? Sure, so uh, we had uh, father, grandfathers, everybody in town mostly had good union jobs. And one of the things that that came with in America was the opportunity to buy a small home. And that small home became uh, a piggy bank because every month paying even a modest amount of mortgage uh, was paying in part to your own family's equity. And the housing crisis really hit first for both grandmothers who spent each almost 20 years as widows uh, with no income. Uh, and then for my dad, who was laid off permanently from his job in, uh, at age 56, it was the fact that they owned their house outright that allowed my sister to stay in college, my younger sister, and ultimately has provided for their old age. That's the American dream. Home ownership was affordable in Pittsburgh. Our family could have never afforded to live in Berkeley. There are different levels of affordability, and for me, housing is very much about respecting and all of the above and all of us strategy. And all of us isn't necessarily gonna entice a construction worker, which we need more of, to be content living in someone else's backyard cottage. And any effort to make one size fits all leaves out people like my dad and my grandparents and my brother and my nephew who are still in the trades. So it's time to be respectful, and that's respectful of both economic and color lines. Ben, uh, Berkeley was one of the first cities to implement single-family zoning shortly after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down racial zoning as unconstitutional. They just rebranded it. Uh, now Berkeley's housing element or housing plan commits the famously liberal city to address its historic underinvestment in communities of color. Will that really happen? 
Uh, yes, it will. <laughs> and it's important to realize too, housing is the fulcrum of the, of the economic health of a society because you can live in high resource areas, your house itself can become a source of wealth, and there are good schools and good jobs nearby. So uh, in Berkeley, we are of course <laughs> the home of single family zoning, or exclusionary zoning, or race zoning, as I call it. Which is kind of shocking for a city that's known to be so liberal. I didn't, that, that was new to me, learning from you. Well, there's a reason why Berkeley is home of the countercultures, because they were reacting to the dominant paradigm at the time, which was hardcore elite conservatism. So the Berkeley radicals were butting up against the power structure. And that, that structure still exists, as we heard earlier. Uh, they're landowners. They may be liberal in politics, but they are still the landowning elite. And it's land hoarding is what we're talking about here. So when you have a time frame where you have extreme wealth inequality, and we talk about people hoarding wealth, you think of stocks and bonds, money, but really land is wealth. And when one group of people has all the land, and you see the result, the cascading poverty throughout the state of California and the country and the world, uh, you have to address it. So in Berkeley, we're also the home of the Fair Housing Act, uh, which addressed uh, the same issues in the 60s and 70s. And so now we have this buttress to really change all the zoning and allow people to just have smaller apartments and, and duplexes and things in wealthy areas and therefore achieve, uh, hopefully, and I believe it will, uh, economic and uh, racial diversity in these high-resource neighborhoods. But when you say duplexes and density and wealthy areas, they hear black people, they hear color, right? <laughs> yeah. That's code for like, oh, right? I mean, oh, yeah. right? So oh, yeah. are those wealthy areas in Berkeley gonna accept more density when they, somewhere, whether they acknowledge it or not, that means scary people. Yeah, well, it's, it's look, here's, here's the thing. The generation below mine, the millennials, is the largest generation in human history. They dwarf the baby boomers and they are out here because the older generation above them has not expanded the portfolio of infrastructure from housing, education, healthcare, you see these student loans out of control, the healthcare, the housing, even arable land, even food. And so all across the world, you have one of crisis affordable housing in every county in the country and also around the world. And homelessness now, I was in a meeting with some Republicans in Missouri who asked me for advice about the fact they had 250 homeless encampments in their suburb of Kansas City. So it's everywhere. So this is a matter of survival of the economy. If you want to have a holistic society with your children able to live here and your, your, your company able to have workers remain here, you have to expand the portfolio. And also, there's a, another economic uh, lesson here as well. As people get older, uh, they, they, their, their physical imprint shrinks, but their house is still big. And we know that senior care is super expensive, so a better way for them is to downsize the house, keep a portion of it to live in, and make money off the rest by opening up to other people. So there's an economic incentive that I think will be persuasive in the end. So Jennifer, your, your thoughts on, on sort of the class and race part of this, because what I hear where Ben's saying a little bit is boomers didn't, haven't done so well and what they're leaving behind. I did a whole interview once about how boomers are kind of sociopaths and, and you know, they started <laughs> off as you know, some of the most liberal progressives in Berkeley, right? Going to save the world, hippies, and they became the, some of the greediest people around. So your take on that. Yeah, so I am a boomer. And uh, I'm at the bottom edge, which means we got educated about drugs to do and not do, which was a benefit, right? Other people <laughs> learned about it. And certainly from Pittsburgh, I owe my scholarships to Harvard and Stanford to those who came before in the civil rights movement and in the kind of counterculture and women's rights movements. California, according to the Air Resources Board, development is 6% of our 100 million acre state. Other states that have any kind of normal population are about 10 to 12% developed. New Jersey is 35% developed. It's everyone knows easier to build new in a way that is entirely sustainable. Net zero for greenhouse gas, the most water and energy conserving uh, structures that we know how to build are the current building codes. The idea that climate change means we have to reject the 7% solution, a million new acres even in California, built on existing infrastructure, designed to be sustainable, absolutely walkable, that is a conceit held here as dogma in the name of the environment, and it's another baby boomer 
mistake. But help me understand where that's going to be, because there's something called the Wildland Urban Interface, which is a lot of places like Paradise, California, places up against the foothills, wooded, beautiful, that with our new climate reality are fire zones. And some people say we shouldn't be building there, and even the people that shouldn't rebuild there. So if we're going to spread out further, isn't that going right into the fire zone and danger zone when we go up against the Sierra foothills? Where is this, where's this going to happen? So, so you skipped a few places in order to get to the Sierras. <laughs> a lot of Marin right now is being used to graze cows, which have their own greenhouse gas emission profile. Yeah. Adding 50,000 people to Marin is a heck of a lot better for the climate than grazing cows. But it's an aesthetic yeah. that we won't yeah. add people to Marin. It's a baby boomer prejudice. And it's, it's not racial, about the environment. It's also racial pre prejudice. I and, completely yeah. agree with you there. I wrote a piece called Green Jim Crow about the use of environmental law to promote racism. Ben, what do you think? Would you rather have, and this is not either or binary, maybe it's and, but the trade-off between more densely uh, populated in, in, in cities like, like Berkeley or, you know, building out? Uh, it's both. I mean, we need, we need the whole portfolio. And um, excellent points, too, I got to say. We, we, need the, we need the urban centers, of course, because that's where the, the most heightened human activity is in the world. That's where the healthiest, the wealthiest, most opportunities, it's the place. And low carbon footprint. And low carbon footprint, of course. Uh, and a place that traditionally people uh, of uh, non-majority status have done well. And then we also need to expand elsewhere as well, because... Looking at the, the state of the, the state, we have more than 100,000 homeless people. Uh, we have a burgeoning workforce that is leaving the state. And we have so many people commuting so far, living in their cars. We've got to address the whole panoply. You describe what's happening in desirable neighborhoods as intergenerational warfare. How so? You know, there's a movie, this movie Tenet, a sci-fi film came out recently. There's a, it's a very talky movie, but there's a line in there which sticks out. Uh, it's when the main character... Uh, is asked, why do you think the people in the future are trying to kill us? Because they're at war with the future. Uh, and he says, well, that's how it is. It's every generation out for themselves. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, right now we are all, um, at least my generation and below, are in a defensive trench hole position, fending off attacks from the older generation. And for instance, my old boss went to law school. Uh, I think he paid <laughs> $15,000, right? You wouldn't even know what my student loans are. Multiple six figures. Everything that they got when the getting was good, they locked up and kept for themselves. It's almost like the, the, the 10 families that own some uh, third old country. We're, we're replicating that. We're this 1%, as we call it, but it's really a different kind of number, uh, controls all the resources and makes you fight to death to get your share of it. Case in point, California is 49 out of 50 for homeownership. That's ridiculous. And at the same time, that generation is spending untold money through private equity and investment to buy up every single family house in the country. They want to make the whole population below them into subscribers and not owners. So this is economic warfare. And, and owning a house is the way that most, certainly since World War II, the biggest source of family wealth, the biggest way that families accumulate wealth. So you're saying that it's concentration more and more on top and we're gonna, the people are going to be subscribers and never owners. Right. And the trends involving you know, artificial intelligence, decimating white collar work, so on, automated, automated transportation is coming as well. So the complete decimation of the transportation sector job wise. So you have this dystopian future that they're dedicated to making happen, where most of us are surviving on pennies, paying rent, owning nothing, and liking it. It's, it's been blue-collar displacement, but white-collar people, they're coming for you. You're not safe anymore. Right. They're not safe at all. They're done. If you've used ChatGPT, you see it coming. Yeah. In the next four years, in our immediate lifetime, you will, you'll begin to see the economic system begin to unravel. So we're in it right now. And so for me, this battle is existential because, you know, my family, we escaped slavery. And, you know, our motto is never again. And these conditions that housing again being the fulcrum on is setting the stage for a return to servitude. And it's not acceptable. So we have to join this fight. Yeah, so I think that... Um 
you've opened my eyes uh, to still more badness. Uh, <laughs> thank, but, thank you, Ben, for coming. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, while all you youngsters have been suffering out of sight um, uh, for my generation, we've been chasing gremlins. Uh, there's a law professor who calls uh, procedural perfectionism a new value uh, that has overwhelmed all other values. So CEQA is about, uh, the California Environmental Quality Act is about procedural perfection. Have you studied everything, including stuff we don't even know we have to study to the nth degree to the satisfaction of a 62-year-old judge who majored in social studies and is a conservative white homeowner? And if not, go back and do it again. But you wonder about your million dollar per door cost and it's value-based decisions standard-based decisions and process-based over-legalism that has created a policy suite in California that isn't replicated even in the rest of the country. It's choices we've made. And so, we need so to be bolder about working together across the generational lines to break it down. So, so Jennifer, what's the solution? California. It's, needs it's totally simple. We need to join the rest of, the, of America in designing and regulating homes to four times median income. It's a magic number. If your median priced home is no more than four times your median income of households, you have a healthy housing market. And the median income changes depending on where you are in California, but it's roughly 80 to $120,000. Californians make a lot more than the rest of the country. But we need to build policies around what we can afford, not what each special interest decides they want and has enough political clout to enforce. We know that California's vehicle miles traveled is one carbon metric that's going the wrong direction. Most of California's I climate things- I'm sorry, I completely disagree. You're okay it's with not lots? a carbon metric. We're doing EV vehicles. We went from less than five miles per gallon when I grew up to now more than 50 miles a gallon in a hybrid vehicle that can go as long a distance as a regular car. And we're moving to EV vehicles. Transportation does not equate to terrible climate outcomes. Transportation that actually works for people- It's the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. Uh, so, so, so Ben, how are you doing here in between two bougie boomers? You know, <laughs> yeah, you know I, I'm, get, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it because, uh, you know, I, I've said this before at council. Uh, again, you know, and I work in innovation in my day job. So I kind of have a pulse on what's coming. Uh, so the whole notion of commuting is going to be altered by uh, basically these robotic cars that serve mm -hmm. entire neighborhoods. They'll just be cruising all the time. You'll share a car with people or you, you want me to drive. The cars will be electric and hydrogen. Um, Sounds like a know. dystopian hell of traffic jam. Well, that part will be fine because they'll be, they'll be in sync. So, Jennifer, what about the areas that are already urbanized with commercial to have a little more housing there? There's already traffic, transit, perhaps. Isn't that part of the solution? Well, it's been part of the solution and zoned as part of the solution now for more than a decade. We already have a number of streamlining laws on the books uh, that reduce some of the hurdles to getting that uh, developed. There's just a, a little problem, which is the pro forma, the actual budget, because those properties, especially in a high wealth community like Silicon Valley, are earning a lot of income. And when you think about buying them, you need to buy them at a price which makes sense for the owners for the revenue stream who are going to yeah. give up that income stream. Mm -hmm. And then you have to put million dollars per apartment buildings on them and hope that you can find enough now in that case, probably $8,000 a month renters. Because we're not buying or building anything at scale at home ownership. Uh, it's all rental apartments. And so the fact is, and that's before you add the 20% inclusionary for mixed income, the fact is those projects haven't penciled. If they did, they'd be being built. Ben, you seem to be questioning capitalism, the kind of private equity, buying up homes, the kind of hyper-capitalism, which is very different. Let's be honest, hyper-capitalism today, is it serving us well? Well, it's actually like hyper-financialism. Uh, it's the Wall Streetification of stuff. Because, uh, you know, capitalism is neutral. It's like electricity. It can heat your home or it can fry you an electric chair, right? Elect electricity is power. 
Capitalism is a, a very efficient means of harnessing human power. And it drives innovation, it drives cooperation, it, it, it pushes excellence and increases growth. And there's no question that American capitalism, uh, at least our American form of moneynomics, <laughs> has led to the greatest prosperity in human history uh, for most of the world, too. And every year it gets better than one before. So I do think, like everything else, capitalism needs to constantly be modulated and cause to challenge itself, cause to grow, because right now our ecosystem is on the verge of collapse. They're saying that we're going to lose half of all species in the next 40 years. So we, we need to just uh, put some new incentives here so we can put our energies into something that will uh, cause benefit to the world. So Jennifer, balancing capitalism and environment and human nature. You know, there's that whole golden rule thing. It's simple, stupid. It works for me. I think it actually works more broadly. Uh, and it has been an underpinning of American capitalism before it became Wall Streetification. I love that phrase because the idea that you could do financial manipulations at a level that brings down the global economy by playing around with secondary mortgage markets, that's not inherent in capitalism. Capitalism is working hard, being able to save money, buy a house, raise your kids, and hopefully have the next generation do better than you are. So a little bit of return of the golden rule and frankly of civil rights. We've managed to park civil rights underneath some weird environmental justice only prioritization, which is an important part of civil rights. But what about upward mobility? What about equal opportunity? What about respect for people who didn't go to college and don't work on a keyboard that do work with their hands that we rely on every day? And we need a lot of those people to electrify things. And we need a lot of electricians in this country, that, in this state that we don't have people to work with their hands. And where are they gonna live? So it comes to housing as the fulcrum. I like that a lot. Back to Pittsburgh and the, and the steel workers. Ben Bartlett and Jennifer Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate One. Let's give them a round. <laughs> on this Climate One, we've been talking about addressing the housing and climate crises equitably. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Talking about climate can be difficult and hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager who co-produced this episode. Our team also includes Wensi Shada. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>